everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode number 31, and I am Michael Bradley. This episode, we are back to the spinner rack for a look at the Superman story from Action Comics number 21, wherein we say goodbye, at least for now, to one of Superman's most nefarious villains. Before we get into that, though, I want to fill you all in on a change in the show, or at least a temporary change. As regular listeners know, over the last few months, I have missed four episodes because of all the computer issues that I've gone through. I really want to make those up, so what I have decided to do is, beginning next week and for the rest of September, the show is going bi-weekly. I will have a show on Tuesday, like always, plus a second show on Friday for the entirety of the rest of the month. And with that, by the end of September, I will have made up those four missed episodes, and the show will be back on track. Those episodes will be some uh, special episodes or big episodes as well. Over the course of those eight episodes, we will see the debut of a very important character in Superman's life. We will say farewell to the Daily Star... I will have a special guest co-host for at least one episode, and we'll be kicking things off with a look at the Superman radio show, and I'm very excited about that. Plus, there will be some other big announcements in there as well. So, I'm looking forward to pretty much all of those episodes, and I hope you are as well. Once again, starting next week, there will be an episode on Tuesday, as well as on Friday, for the entirety of September. So if you aren't subscribed via iTunes and you don't keep tabs on the RSS feed or the Facebook page or the Twitter feed, be sure to check back to the site on those Fridays in September so you don't miss any episodes. And speaking of ways to get a hold of episodes of the show, stay tuned to the end of this episode for an announcement about a new way to latch onto episodes that I'm pretty sure will make the show a lot more accessible for folks. July 1963. The Marvel Age of Comics was dawning. First came the rise of the Fantastic Four. Then came the Incredible Hulk, followed by the Amazing Spider-Man and the Mighty Thor. But the Marvel Age was about to give way to the Age of the Atom, and nothing would be the same. Was the world ready for the strangest superheroes of all? The X-Men? On June 3rd, you can go to the movie theater and see the evolution of the X-Men, or you can listen to Xavier's podcast for Gifted Youngsters, an X-Men podcast, and see how it really began. It's the Merry Marvel Mutants, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, the Angel, the Beast, Iceman, and their mentor, Professor Xavier, from the beginning, issue by issue. Every two weeks, join J. David Weeder and Michael Bailey as they follow the X-Men saga from the creation to the first class and beyond. Gasp at the tyranny of Magneto, stand in the awe of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, marvel at the mystery of the Vanisher, and cower at the sight of the Submariner. All for the first time, panel by panel. On June 3rd, prepare for the Children of the Atom at xavierspodcast.blogspot.com.
With a cover date of February 1940, Action Comics number 21 had a cover price of 10 cents and the standard 64 pages. It hit the stands around December 27, 1939, making it the final Superman comic book of the year. Unfortunately, as great as 1939 has been for the character, it didn't exactly go out on a high note with this story, as we will see. The cover, which was drawn by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, shows Superman descending onto what looks to be a U-boat. Under Superman's arm is a torpedo. Three crewmen on the boat fire a gun into the distance. They don't seem to notice Superman, but probably will in about five seconds when he lands on deck holding a torpedo. We also have a reminder on the cover that time is winding down to enter the gigantic contest that J. David Weeder and I discussed in episode 28. I gotta say, I like this cover quite a bit. It's just a very iconic looking Superman from this era. It has nothing to do with the story inside, but still it's quite a nice cover. Our 13-page Superman story was written by, of course, Jerry Siegel. Art credit goes to Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, and Joe Schuster and possibly Dennis Neville, according to the Grand Comics database. It looks more like Cassidy to me, but I'm not an expert. The Chronicles volume that reprints this story simply credits Joe Schuster and the Schuster Studio. So that's really no help, though accurate in either case. But it is edited by brand new editor Whitney Ellsworth, taking over for the departing Vin Sullivan. I talked about Sullivan and why he left back during the spotlight on Vin Sullivan in episode 21. Ellsworth had previously worked for the company alongside Sullivan as editor under Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, but had left sometime prior to work in California. When Sullivan quit, Ellsworth returned to the company, now being run by Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, and took over Sullivan's role as editor on all of National's titles. And I will do a spotlight on Ellsworth down the road to give you more information about that. We are going to see quite a few changes to Superman during Ellsworth's tenure as editor. Some were his decree, some were just the changing times and the changing world. There won't be any major changes immediately, and as we've already seen, Superman is still evolving on his own, but prepare for even more changes down the road. Plus, while Ellsworth's tenure as editor only lasts until the fall of 1942, Ellsworth is going to be associated with the character of Superman in one form or another for the next couple of decades, so be prepared to hear his name a lot for the foreseeable future. So, our story was untitled when it was originally published, but has since been called The Atomic Disintegrator. As it begins, Clark Kent, ace reporter for the Daily Star, is walking to work when an explosion rocks the area, causing a nearby building to collapse. Clark is able to push those around him to safety, but in doing so is buried beneath the rubble. Clark claws his way from the debris and is unharmed, of course, but a man insists that Clark follow him back to his lab for medical treatment. The man is surprised to find Clark is without so much as a scratch, but as Clark looks around the man's wrecked lab, he wonders if this man and his experiments might have been res responsible for the explosion. The man admits that he was, but that the explosion was accidental. He then goes on to say that his name is Terry Curtis, and he had been working on, quote, harnessing atomic energy. He had been working earlier that day, and his experiments caused the explosion. 
He tells Clark that he is nearing the point of developing a weapon so powerful that it can destroy anything it is targeted at. Once more, instead of calling the cops that a crackpot scientist is cooking up what seems to be military-grade weaponry in his basement, Clark just warns Curtis to be careful, then heads back to the Daily Star to turn in the story. And of course, railing against all wise judgment in a town overrun with crooks, thieves, gangsters, and mad scientists, editor George Taylor thinks it's a swell story and runs it on the front page of the next edition. Elsewhere, the ultra-humanite, having survived his, or her, dive into the water in Action Comics number 20, sees the article about Curtis's atomic disintegrator and plots to steal it for herself. That evening, Curtis takes a stroll through the park and comes across the ultra-humanite, who he believes is a helpless young woman, struggling to free a cat that has gotten stuck in a fence. Curtis helps to get the cat loose and then chats it up with the ultra-humanite on a park bench for quite some time. The ultra-humanite finally tells Curtis that she's interested in hearing more about the atomic disintegrator, which leaves me to wonder why Curtis is using that as his pickup line. It's like, hey babe, want to come back to my place and see my atomic disintegrator? But regardless, Curtis says he'll tell her all about it when they meet tomorrow. Same time, same place. Very suave. Curtis walks away happy, thinking he scored a hot date but the ultra-humanite secretly revels to herself about how foolish Curtis is. The next evening, Curtis is getting ready for the date, and Clark shows up. For what reasons, we're never told. But he asks Curtis why, if his experiments are coming along so nicely, he's bothering getting dressed up. Yeah, I, I don't get it either. But Curtis replies, Because I'm to meet the loveliest girl in the world tonight. She resembles Dolores Winters, the actress. No mention from either man that what couldn't have been too long ago, Winters abducted a boat full of rich people and held them for ransom. And Clark, it seems, doesn't find it at all suspicious that someone working on a weapon capable of destroying buildings suddenly meets someone who looks exactly like a woman bent on world domination. So he just leaves. Shortly after, the ultra-humanite shows up, surprising Curtis. The ultra-humanite tries to steal Curtis's plans for the atomic disintegrator, which are apparently just written down on a single sheet of paper that was laying open on his desk, but Curtis is having none of it. Curtis demands to know what she's up to, but the ultra-humanite pulls a gun and, along with a couple of goons, forces Curtis into a waiting auto-gyro. Meanwhile, it finally dawns on Clark that, oh my gosh, someone who looks like the ultra-humanite just might actually be the ultra-humanite and decides he should go warn Curtis. But unfortunately, he arrives at Curtis's lab to find it ransacked and abandoned. At her stronghold, the ultra-humanite demands Curtis continue work on his disintegrator or die. Curtis refuses, but the ultra-humanite's torture ray soon changes his mind. A week later, Clark sits at home, smoking a pipe, reading a book, and wondering whatever happened to Curtis. Let me rephrase that. A week later, Clark sits at home doing nothing while a scientist making an extremely deadly superweapon is possibly held captive by someone who, last issue, admitted her plan was to kill everyone in the world and create a new master race. And suddenly we are in an issue of Detective Comics. Just then, though, the ultra-humanite broadcasts a message throughout Metropolis demanding $2 million or she will destroy the city and everyone in it. 
And I note that she asked for $5 million in exchange for a boat full of celebrities last issue. And they delivered. So only $2 million in exchange for not blowing up the city seems kind of paltry. But regardless, she then says that as an example that it's not an empty threat, she will destroy Wentworth Tower at 2 o'clock. Hearing the message, Clark changes to Superman, intent on stopping her. Leaping through the city, he lands atop a skyscraper near the Wentworth Tower and... waits. True to her word, though, at 2 o'clock sharp, an airship flies through the air, firing off a ray which strikes the building, causing rubble to rain down on the crowded streets below. Finally going into action, Superman leaps down to the street below and braces the falling building. He holds it up until the terrified people can clear the area, then allows the tower to collapse into a pile of rubble and dust. Launching himself into the air, Superman goes after the vessel and easily catches up to it. The crew inside the vessel fire the disintegrator ray at Superman, but our hero is able to twist and dodge the shot. Landing back on the ground, Superman looks up to see the vessel has turned and is aimed right at him, preparing to fire the weapon again. Superman hurls a giant boulder at the plane, smashing the deadly weapon, then hops atop the plane and settles in for a ride. His destination? Another confrontation with the Ultra-Humanite. Back at her lair, the Ultra-Humanite has observed the whole scene via video and makes plans for the Man of Steel's arrival. Soon, the air vessel descends into a dormant volcano and lands inside a city encased within a glass dome. As the plane lands, two robots attack Superman, but our hero easily turns the robots into scrap metal. And despite the fact that they are really, really goofy-looking robots, this is the first time Superman has fought a robot, and since Superman fighting a robot is almost always cool, they get a pass. Superman then leaps onto a nearby balcony to confront the Ultra-Humanite. However, upon entering the tower, Curtis warns him to stay back, saying the Ultra-Humanite has lit rigged the room with a photoelectric eye beam, and should Superman break the beam, Metropolis will be destroyed. The Ultra-Humanite takes the opportunity to mock Superman, but our hero stands firm, saying that he came for Curtis and isn't leaving without him. At that, the Ultra-Humanite strikes a deal with Superman, saying that she will release Curtis if Superman will steal the crown jewels which are being held at the Reynolds building. With no choice, air quotes, no choice, but to acquiesce to the mad woman's demands, Superman leaps off to retrieve the jewels. After Superman's departure, the Ultra-Humanite broadcasts yet another message to Metropolis, alerting the authorities that Superman is on his way to steal the jewels. And in case you were curious why she would do such a thing, we get a nice panel where Curtis asks her just that. She replies, It will be interesting to observe what occurs when the Man of Steel meets their resistance. And she should know by now that someone's going to get whooped, and it won't be Superman. So as Superman arrives on scene, police officers and members of the National Guard have gathered to protect the building. Superman remarks that it looks like the entire city has come, but from the art it looks like a couple dozen people at most. Still, Superman stands atop a telephone pole and says he doesn't want to hurt anybody, but suggests that they don't stand in his way either. The troops respond by telling Superman to come down, and then, without warning, firing a cannon in the middle of downtown, blasting the pole to smithereens and knocking Superman to the street. The troops charge, and Superman responds by twisting open a fire hydrant and allowing the gushing water to force back the advance. Superman uses the distraction to scurry up the side of a building while a shower of bullets bounce off his back. 
Superman grabs a hold of a flagpole, and randomly, a guy with an axe pops out of one of the windows, chopping the flagpole, causing Superman to fall back down. Thankfully, Superman catches himself on a ledge and is able to resume his climb. However, on top of the building, members of the National Guard are attempting to push a safe over the side of the building. And it's yet another huge safe, too, uh, like the one Superman lifted in the first Sunday newspaper strip story that we covered last episode. It's, it's just huge. Big enough that a full-grown man could easily fit inside. So how two lone soldiers are able to push this thing, and more importantly, how they got it to the roof to begin with, is not explained. Regardless, they do succeed in pushing the safe off the side of the building, and the safe plummets downward right into Superman's waiting hand. With a mighty heave, Superman tosses it softball-style back onto the roof. Just a bit later, Superman himself has finally made it to the roof as well. The guard commander charges at Superman, but our hero grabs the commander's gun, flipping the soldier over the side of the roof. As the commander dangles precariously, Superman warns the other soldiers to stay back, or they'll find their commander turned into street pizza. They fall back, and Superman pulls the commander back to safety and warns him to watch where he's aiming his gun next time. Superman then jumps through a skylight into the room where the jewels are being guarded by a trio of police officers. Fending off tear gas and a barrage of bullets, Superman tears into the safe and swipes the jewels, before busting out of the wall, avoiding airplane fire, and making his escape. Soon, Superman arrives once more at the ultra-humanite's lair. He charges in, but is caught in a trap. A double-cross, courtesy of the always-trustworthy evil supervillain. As diamond drills, the hardest substance on Earth, we're told, press closer. Superman swings and smashes the drills and the trap to pieces. Another random thug comes out of nowhere and fires the disintegrator at Superman, but our hero knocks out the thug with a left hook. As Curtis puts the ultra-humanite in a chokehold, preventing her from flipping the switch that will destroy Metropolis, Superman uses the disintegrator to destroy the photoelectric eye before turning his attention towards the villain herself. But, before Superman can grab the faux female felon, the ultra-humanite knocks out a window and jumps into the heart of the volcano. Superman destroys the laboratory's equipment, then grabs Curtis and deposits him safely outside the volcano. Superman then begins tossing boulder after boulder into the volcano, finally, somehow, causing the volcano to erupt. As the glass-domed city is destroyed, Superman once again grabs Curtis and leaps clear of the devastating eruption. Arriving shortly back at the outskirts of Metropolis, Curtis can hardly believe everything he's seen. And since we are on the last panel, Superman tells him to forget all about it, and the fact that he ever invented the atomic disintegrator, and bids Curtis goodbye. The end. And thank goodness. So yeah, there was that. I don't hate the basic ideas in this story. The atomic disintegrator, kidnapping the scientist, the glass-domed city in the volcano, they're all very cool science fiction and comic booky ideas. But man, this is a terrible story otherwise. The entire story hinges on Clark slash Superman being a complete idiot. He doesn't realize, or even find it remotely worth checking into until far later than he should have, that someone who looks like Dolores Winters might actually be Dolores Winters. And even after that, and finding out that Curtis's lab has been wrecked and destroyed, it's a week later before he does anything. 
And even then, he only goes into action when the ultra-humanite threatens to destroy the city. The fight between Superman and the National Guard troops could have been good, but it comes off very cartoonish in Looney Tunes, with Superman unleashing the hydrant and the whole bit with pushing the safe off the roof, plus the guy that comes out of nowhere and chops the flagpole in half. And worse, that scene ended with Superman stealing valuable jewels, then busting out of the place. He brings the jewels back to the Ultra-Humanite's lair, and we never see them again after Superman is nearly caught in a trap, so I can only assume that they were lost when the lair was destroyed and the volcano erupted. So we have Superman guilty of breaking and entering, destruction of public property, assaulting a police officer, and grand theft. Awesome. The end is also very abrupt. It feels like Siegel just simply ran out of pages. The ultra-humanite jumps down into the volcano, and she's never mentioned again, either by the narration or the characters. I guess we are to presume that she's dead, since Superman caused the volcano to erupt, but it's never addressed again in this issue. Superman doesn't seem to be at all concerned or even notice that she's either dead or still at large. Art-wise, it's pretty standard fare. Uh, pretty much just what we've seen in recent comic stories. Nothing really stands out about what I haven't already mentioned, either on the positive or negative side. But yeah, that's the Superman story from Action Comics number 21. And I'm pretty much past it at this point. Uh, just kind of ready to move on. Like I've said, I really, really want to like the Ultra Humanite, but Siegel is clearly still working out the kinks and the larger-than-life supervillains. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, this is the final Golden Age appearance of the Ultra-Humanite, and it's a very inauspicious ending to such a historically significant character being Superman's first recurring villain. The character does make a return, however, in the 1980s, and some of those stories are actually set in this era as well. The first reappearance is in Superman Family number 201 in a story by E. Nelson Bridwell. Then later, and more significantly, in a trio of Justice League of America issues by Jerry Conway and a significant number of issues in uh, Roy Thomas's All-Star Squadron and Infinity, Inc. Interestingly, the scientist, Terry Curtis, also makes a comeback in those issues of All-Star Squadron. Roy Thomas adds a lot of history to the character, including giving him a past relationship with Danette Riley, a.k.a. Firebrand, and having the ultra-humanite subject Curtis to experiments, which causes him to gain superhuman abilities and become the villain known as Cyclotron. And it was Cyclotron's battles with the All-Star Squadron that was used to retroactively explain how the Golden Age Adam, Al Pratt, gained his superhuman abilities as originally he was a non-powered character. Thomas also gave Curtis a daughter, likewise named Terry, who had contracted radiation poisoning and somehow passed abilities onto her son, Albert Rothstein, aka the hero known as Nuclon, or more recently, Atom Smasher. So, Curtis is eventually a pretty important figure in DC history, but that's all Bronze Age stuff and not really pertinent to what we're talking about here, but it is another example of the legacy and lasting effect that these stories have. 
Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey will likely be covering the All-Star Squadron issues dealing with the Ultra Humanite and Terry Curtis pretty soon on Tales of the Justice Society of America, so be sure to check those out if you're interested. An ad in the last panel of the final page reads, The Spectre. Who is he? What is he? A startling new and really different feature written by Jerry Siegel, author of Superman, and drawn by Bernard Bailey. The Spectre starts in the February issue of More Fun Comics. Don't miss him. This isn't the first time that, that the fact that Jerry Siegel writes Superman has been used to sell another product, but I did think it was kind of telling that Siegel's work gets referenced and Bailey's doesn't. If you're interested in reading this story, uh, it has been reprinted twice, first in Superman The Action Comics Archives Volume 2 and in Superman Chronicles Volume 3. We are now into new volumes of both of those series, starting with this issue, so you'll have to break open a new book for this and future stories. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. It is kind of a dull issue outside of the Superman strip as well. Other features are the usual suspects, Pet Morgan, Chuck Dawson, Clip Carson, Tex Thompson, The Three Aces, and Zaytara. We've also got a half-page ad for Flash Comics, which bills the book as the newest, most exciting comic magazine in the newsstands today. And finally, there's a two-page ad reminding of the gigantic Superman contest, which David and I talked at length about in episode 28. The contest ends on January 28, 1940, so be sure to send your entry in right away. There's no Superman of America page in this issue, because the ad for the contest takes its place. Meanwhile, though, in books that are not action comics from December 1939, like I said earlier in the episode, Vince Sullivan's time as editor 
comes to an end on Action Comics, More Fun Comics, and Detective Comics. He is credited as editor in Adventure Comics for two more months, and that's his last credit of any kind with the company. Like with Action Comics, Whitney Ellsworth takes over as editor on the other books as well. First up was Action Comics number 20, which David and I looked at in episode 28. There was More Fun Comics number 51. There's no Radio Squad story in this issue. Uh, it will return next issue, however, with a new artist replacing Joe Schuster. As I mentioned when David was here, Schuster is no longer drawing any strip except for Superman now. This issue also saw the end of the Buccaneer strip by Bernard Bailey and the Flying Fox strip by Terry Gilkinson. Both strips will be replaced next issue by The Spectre, which we will talk more about then. There was Detective Comics number 35, which saw the return of Bill Finger as the writer of the Batman feature, so very cool. Adventure Comics number 46 was the end of the Skip Schooler strip by Tom Hickey. There was also Flash Comics number 2, an all-American book, which had the first cover with Hawkman as the main feature. It's also the only Hawkman cover, penciled by Superman artist Dennis Neville as well. Uh, he only did the art for the Hawkman strip in the first three issues of the title, and of those three issues, this is the only one where Hawkman was the main cover feature. Inside saw a new feature added to the book, Rod Ryan of the Sky Police, which was by Paul H. Jepson. And speaking of All-American Publications, finally there was All-American Comics number 11. Outside of DC, two books of note. First there was Marvel Mystery Comics number 4 from Timely Comics. This book had the first cover appearance of Namor the Submariner, and it shows Namor punching out Nazis aboard a Nazi boat called the Death Razor. And last but not least, there was Pep Comics number 1, the first MLJ superhero title and first appearance of The Shield, who was one of the first patriotic-themed superheroes, and most certainly an influence on another patriotic hero that will be showing up in little over a year. The Shield will also feature prominently in The Mighty Crusaders, which is a book that Jerry Siegel will write in the mid-60s. Over 70 years of history in film, television, radio, and comics. Who are you? A friend. A hero sent to Earth from a doomed planet to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. A strange visitor from another planet? Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio. A look at Superman's history in all mediums, from comics to film to merchandise, animation, and beyond. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Join me every Sunday and Thursday for a twice-weekly exodus into the world of Superman. Sundays we explore a wide range of topics throughout the mythology, from the heights of Metropolis to the fields of Smallville and to the depths of the galaxy of Krypton, plus the latest news, gossip, and a look at Superman and other media. In Thursdays, we review the Superman comics following the Infinite Crisis in 2006, all the way up to the present, month by month, issue by issue. And don't forget the SFR Daily Planet, a mini-cast giving you the scoop on the Man of Steel as it happens. 
So visit supermanforever.com or iTunes and, of course, the Superman Podcast Network and begin the never-ending battle today. Superman Forever Radio. All Superman. All the time. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Next time, we will be back to the newspapers for a look at the 10th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. I want to thank you all for joining me this episode. Please stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes for this episode as well as all previous episodes. There you will also find the email address for the show, which is thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Please feel free to drop me a line with any questions or comments or other feedback that you might have. At the site you will also find a multitude of ways in which to contact me or connect with the show. There is the link to the show's Facebook page, the Twitter feed, the RSS feed, as well as the iTunes link. If you use iTunes, any and all iTunes reviews are welcomed and appreciated. There is also a new way to find the show, and I'm extremely happy to be able to announce this, but you can now find the show at the Superman homepage. Steve Yunus has graciously agreed to give the show a plug whenever I have new episodes, so you'll be able to find a post there in their news feed at supermanhomepage.com whenever that happens. He's actually plugged the last couple of episodes, but those were recorded before I got word back from him, so I wasn't able to mention it in those episodes. Uh, For those of you who are joining the show after seeing the note at the Superman homepage, a big welcome to you all. I really do appreciate Steve supporting the show. Steve Runs is hands down one of the greatest Superman sites on the internet, so thank you very much, Steve. The show is also proud to be a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, along with many other excellent Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com